Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. A most interesting and welcome guest joins us tonight, Leonard Pitts, Jr., who uh, will be familiar to regular readers of the Tribune or of any of 200 or so other American newspapers uh, in that he is a well-known columnist, uh, ranging broadly over public issues, political issues. Uh, He originally started as a music critic, and occasionally he will still do some commentary on matters of that sort. And he won the Pulitzer Prize for the year 2004 for general commentary. Uh, His home newspaper is the Miami Herald, though he lives in the Washington area. His new book is titled Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood. Now, uh, you're a father, I'm a father. Uh, why am I, as a white father, different from you as a black father? <laughs> how, much, how long is the program? Um, the fact of the matter is that we're dealing with a lot of the same things as a black and white father, uh, or as black and white fathers, but then there's a whole new or whole other universe of things that's sort of layered on uh, having to do with race. As a white father, you probably will not have occasion to have to teach your child how to behave when stopped by the police so that he is not accidentally, in quotes, mm-hmm. uh, shot, you know, by, by an overzealous officer who mistakes a, a wallet or something like that for a gun. Uh, as a black father, as a white father, you'll not have that occasion, which I've had with uh, four of my five kids now, uh, to sort of console a child when he or she comes home from uh, playing with a white playmate who gets angry over something and, and uses the N-word with them. So there's a whole universe of things that, you know, you, that, are, that are made different or more difficult because you're African-American. Though as a white Jewish father, well, I had, that's uh, not, not comparable, but there are little things. Yeah. I remember my kid coming home at the age of, in fourth grade thereabouts and puzzled, confused, and bothered by the fact that a whole bunch of kids were calling him Goldberg when yeah. his name is Rosenberg. Right. And he couldn't quite understand what that meant. And it was rather clear to me that this was a way of taunting him right. for being Jewish. Right. And I had to talk with him about that. Uh, and, of course, he's a, he's a grown man and a very competent man, yeah. but he's not unaware of the fact that uh, with a name like Rosenberg, uh, sometimes people take a special attitude towards him. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's, you know, I guess sort of the universe of things that we're talking about. And in particular, the reason that this book, you know, is subtitled um, about, Af- you know, the uh, black men and the journey to fatherhood is that it's also dealing with the fact that the rate of fatherlessness in the african-american community is so much higher than in the uh... in in the nation at large uh... so it's dealing with um, it's it's about the how as a as a as an african-american man who's either not had father in the home or not had a good father in the home which is my uh... circumstance you go about becoming a good father yourself when um in the 1970s, uh, the report was done on um, the black family. Right. The one by Senator Moynihan when he was just was, an assistant yeah. to uh, Nixon in the White House. Late 60s or there. Yeah, parts. I think it was late, yeah, late 60s. It would have to have been the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, at that time, he reported that the black illegitimacy rate, and that's the term he used, mm-hmm. was about 30%. That is, some 30% of all black kids were born out of wedlock. Right. The figure now runs between 75 to 80 percent. Actually, it's closer to about 70 percent, I believe. 70 to 75, somewhere in there. Whereas the white illegitimacy rate mm-hmm. has now gone up to where the black illegitimacy rate was in the late 1960s. Yeah, it's about 30 percent. Actually, I think it's higher than that. I well, think so it's, it's higher. Yeah, it's rising. I believe it's higher than that. Which reflects a general problem in the country about the deterioration of marriage. 
Yeah, I think not just a deterioration of marriage, but just sort of this ideal that sort of crept in as a as a side effect of the feminist movement that men were expendable, uh, and that men and women were interchangeable. There's nothing that I that I bring to the family as a man, as a father, mm-hmm. that cannot be replaced or duplicated by a dedicated mother. And I think that we are seeing some of the fruits of that misguided uh, way of thinking. Um, you know, if you look at the the, the performance in in the uh, educational arena, if you look at the you know kids going to jail, if you look at the the, the deterioration of some of our cities, I think you're really beginning to 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 see the results of the absence of father, black and white communities. Uh, I always tell people that you know the the, the thing is that as African Americans we are sort of the uh, what's the expression the canary in the in the coal mine mm-hmm. I think for the rest of the nation so I think that's what you're seeing in our communities. Both uh, John McWhorter who's been here and Shelby Steele who's been here, mm-hmm. both of them uh, recently have done books mm-hmm. and they're both well-known significant black intellectuals in which they essentially argue it's time to stop blaming Whitey. Whitey carries carries a lot of the blame historically, but we've got to. St- we have to stop copying the plea and really get black men to face their responsibilities, particularly their responsibilities in fatherhood. Well, I come from a slightly different uh, perspective. I, I think that the failure, the mistake that we make a lot of times is to frame this as an either or, mm-hmm. which I call a false dichotomy. There are things that are done to us as African Americans, there are conditions that we live under as African Americans that are, you know, I don't use the term whitey, but that are, you know, that come from, you know, the, the, the larger white community. There is racism, there is oppression, there are things that we need to deal, that, that, that are done to us that we need to fight against. But that does not mitigate the fact that we have a lot of responsibility for, uh, for the conditions in our, in our own communities. There are things that we can do to save our communities right now. I tell people this all the time, that do not require white people's permission, their approval, or even their, you know, their knowledge. And I think that in, it's a lot easier for me to, to fight something from outside than to acknowledge that, okay, there's also some things from inside. And it, I'm sorry. Well, what's wrong inside? What's wrong inside, I think, is that we have bought into this sort of insidious idea that says, you know, the, and again, this is a national thing, but we've seemed to have taken a double helping of it, this insidious idea that says that uh, that father doesn't really matter, that uh, it's okay, that it's, 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 it's fine if you have just the mom. If you've, if you've read the book, you find that there are a num- uh, number of occasions where uh, the idea of having a father in the home is treated as something abnormal is treated as something sort of strange. Uh, I think that that's probably the major thing that's wrong inside, this sort of normalizing of fatherlessness homes. But the sociologist's analysis of how black homes became more and more fatherless Mm -hmm. was that aid to dependent children, as legislated, generally drove the man out of the uh, family system, in that you could only get aid to dependent children if there wasn't a working male in the entourage. AFDC. Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe that there's some truth to that, but I think that the larger truth, again, is that uh, as an unintended byproduct of the feminist movement, you know, we came upon this idea that it doesn't really matter, that it's, you know, it's okay not to have dad at home. Dad doesn't bring anything to the house. It was really interesting was when I asked people to quantify what it is that dad does. You know, everybody's able to talk about mom as a nurturer and mom yeah. does this, that, and the other. But dad, people really have trouble saying what it is that dad brings to the household beyond money. Do you remember the great uh, and profound uh, saying on all of this of um, the woman who founded 
Ms. Magazine, what's her name? Uh, Steinem, wasn't it? Gloria Steinem. Yeah. Who says, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Yeah, exactly. And as I said, this is sort of, you know, I... I I, I am in complete harmony with the goals of the feminist movement, but I think that like a lot of worthy movements, uh, they tend to have sort of these unintended byproducts. In arguing that men and women are equal, which they are, uh, I think a lot of the, the, the feminists also argue that men and women are the same, and they are not. And that's something that we've had a whole lot of difficulty in facing. Three plus three equals six, but four plus two is also six. The fancy word for it, and it was offered as a goal years ago when feminism was all the rage, was androgyny. Yeah. yeah. Women and men are essentially androgynous. Yeah. They are the same. Yeah, and that, and that you only become a man by socialization. There's a book, I have not read it yet, but which I find fascinating, the, the thesis rather fascinating on this subject there's a boy he was born a boy oh, yeah. was, you read you've heard about this sure it was a, it's know. john money's uh, yeah uh, case yeah a sexologist down at johns hopkins uh, the kid was born uh, sort of quasi hermaphroditic and they uh, uh, they tried to change him in terms of surgery into a female and they raised him as a female yeah. but he remains male yeah he remained a, he he's raised as a girl he thinks he's a girl but he doesn't understand why he has an urge to use to relieve himself standing up yeah you know so you know malehood manhood malehood these things are not a matter of socialization these things are a matter of biology dr freud said uh, uh, essentially that biology is destiny yeah i think that there's there's obviously some some truth to that especially with regard to you know this failed experiment in um, in uh, male and uh, men and women interchangeability. You start your book, and I want to come to it directly after we take care of some news, which is coming in just a few seconds. But you start your book with a memoir, really, of your own family life, and then right. you go on to talk to many black men about fatherhood. And we're going to sample some of the content of that book with Leonard Pitts Jr. directly after. An update on this evening's news. And we return to conversation with Leonard Pitts, Jr., uh, a leading American journalist, columnist with the Miami Herald, who is nationally syndicated, in fact syndicated by Tribune Syndicate, and you can read him twice a week in the Chicago Tribune, the winner of the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for Commentary, and the author of the book Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood. The publishers are, uh, how do you say that? Agate. Agate, not Agate or Agate, no. but Agate, <laughs> Agate Publishing. It just actually reissued in paperback, is yes, that right? Yes, this some, year. With some new writing on it. Uh, with a new introduction. Yeah. Um, and the first portion of the book, the first chapter, is your own memoir of your own childhood and your father. Yeah. Yours was not a totally absent father. No, my father was there every day and you know night of my life. There were times when we wished we, that, that he yeah. was absent, but he was he was there. He was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic and um, sort of a split personality, I guess, which is probably true of a lot of alcoholics. When he was not drinking, he could be, you know, the sweetest man that you'd ever want to be around, but he was seldom not drinking. And when he was, you know, fully lubricated, he could be, uh, he could be pretty mean. He could be pretty hard. Well, you wrote a column only recently about a uh, about Mel Gibson, right? In which you. Uh, essentially fell back upon, even if you didn't quote it, the old Roman maxim in vino veritas, in wine or truth. in alcohol generally, there is truth. truth. Yes. And thus you're saying uh, Gibson can apologize all he wants, but it was the, the real Gibson speaking when he was drunk. Yeah, I don't think even Gibson realized that it was the real Gibson, yeah. which, you know, I almost, to, in a way I felt sorry for for the man, which is, you know, 
kind of a weird thing feeling sorry mm-hmm. for a bigot but i really don't think he knew that that was in there at least as much as it was and as deep as it was but your father's problem which came out when he was drunk wasn't so much that he was a bigot just that he was a mean guy yeah my father was pretty abusive to all of us there were four siblings uh well there's four kids i have three siblings uh and my mom and most of the the bulk of it came to to me and to my mother um to my mom, I guess, because she was a convenient target to me because I was the oldest child and because I was not the son that my father wanted me to be. Uh, it's the best way I can put it. Uh, I was... Um, he thought you were the punk. Yeah, he thought I was... <laughs> my father thought I was going to grow up to be uh, to be gay, which was, you know, the, the, the most frightening thing I guess he could conceive of. And he thought this because... And your masculine brother did. Yeah, the, my brother that he thought was going to be, you know, the, 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 the ladies' man turned out to be, you know, the man, <laughs> the man's man, I guess. Yeah. My brother's gay. Uh, my father thought this because I was a bookworm. Still am a bookworm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't anything that he, he couldn't relate, you know, to him, the idea of wanting to sit up all day with books as opposed to be outside playing football obviously meant there was something wrong in the wiring. Yeah. Still, you had a family. You had a father. Yes. And you have, you continue to, though he's dead and has been for some time, mm. you still have sort of ambivalent feeling towards him, I think. I had. I, I, it, one of the things that came out of writing the book was to to be able to say, you know, I, I love you, Dad. Uh, because before I wrote the book, I really did not, I really didn't have a good answer for that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, part of the, the process of writing the book was to sort of enable me to get through that. He was not a great dad, but I think he was the, you know, someone said he was the best dad that he knew how to be. But the typical black father in this country today mm-hmm. is a young guy who hangs around the neighborhood doing one thing or another. Maybe he's fully employed, more likely he's not. Maybe involved in drugs, maybe involved in gambling. One doesn't know. Uh, has more than one woman in his life, and has fathered children with a number of women, and has virtually nothing to do with any of those kids. That's the man that you really have most in mind in the writing of this book. I don't. I would take issue with the idea of that as a typical black father. I would say that there are far too many black fathers who probably meet that description, but there are also a lot of other black fathers who are you know, in the home and committed, some, many of whom are in the book, as a matter of yeah. fact. And, 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 and I should have drawn work. the distinction between the black middle class, yeah. which is uh, living much the way the rest of America does, and the people left behind in the inner city. Yeah, even in the inner city, though, there are, there are people who are... To be sure. Know, ...who are trying to, who are, who are, you know, trying to do the work of being, of being fathers. But with that said, yeah, there are, you know, however we want to phrase it, there are far too many... African American men uh, who are uh, not doing, you know, the job of fatherhood, uh, and I think again that there are a lot of reasons for that. One, I think, is that it's been it's too easy for us as men. Period. Black men or white men, it's very easy for us to walk away. There is no social stigma for us uh, not being involved with our families. Well, how did it come to be the case that there is no such social stigma? There would have been a social stigma for me and people of my generation if I uh, fathered kids and then didn't uh, relate to them and didn't right. care for them and didn't contribute at least to their welfare whether I was in the home or not. It would have been from your generation, I think the generation or two that came after yours, we we're sort of the no-fault generation. Yeah. You know, uh, when you do wrong, rather than shame you, rather than embarrass you, I want to try to understand you. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem. And again, I shouldn't make, you know, I, I hesitate to caricature it because there are there are some good in, 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 in that whole idea of trying to understand where somebody went wrong. But I think that, again, it's a pendulum that swung too far to the extreme to where nobody is nobody's ever called on the carpet for anything. Mm-hmm. 
you can do what you want. You can you can you can you can leave your 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 family. You can have no involvement with your family, and it's okay. I'm still gonna you're still gonna be able to hold your head up in 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 decent company. Now, is this true at sort of working class levels to call it that mm -hmm. at non bourgeois non middle class levels? Is this true? across all America, white, black, Latino, whatever? Yeah, there's a book by Daniel Blankenhorn, Fatherless America, yeah. I believe it's called, where he deals with some of these uh, same issues. I forget the gentleman's name, a governor of, I want to say Rhode Island, but I may be incorrect, uh, who, um, you know, had a, was revealed that he had a daughter with whom he'd never had a relationship. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty much that same thing, you know, that there was really no stigma attached. Uh, Larry Bird, the basketball player, uh, was revealed a few years ago, apparently had a daughter uh, with whom he had no, uh, you know, no relationship or didn't know her or whatever the situation was. I don't know that anybody thinks less of Larry Bird because of that. Uh, I don't know that you know it's 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 difficult for him to to or, or for any you know man for getting a, a Larry Bird for any, for any man to really hold his head up, uh, you know in the same way that it would be for a woman who who did the same things. Uh, the problem is that women do not do us the honor of holding us to high expectations of ha or society does not do us the honor of holding us to, to high expectations, and I think you see that uh, reflected in the in the behavior that you get. Uh, Who's that very popular black talk show host nationally on television now? Uh, are you talking about Tavis Smiley? I am talking about Tavis Smiley. And I heard a piece of a uh, program that he did only over the last weekend yeah. uh, in which one of the guests, and they were, they were addressing this problem, basically. And one of the guests was saying, um, we have to understand that it's, uh, this has structural causes. We can't blame black men. This has structural causes. Then he went on to say what he meant by structural causes, which was black unemployment and, uh, and uh, the long heritage of suppression and prejudice and so on, to which uh, most of the variants could be attributed. Yeah, <laughs> there are structural problems. There's unemployment, there is oppression, there is repression, but you know what? Those things There's also always, individual those, responsibility. Not just that, but those things have always existed. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, 40 years ago, those things were enshrined in law and in custom. And yet 40 years ago, African Americans were not less in, not as inclined as whites to be married uh, and, to, and to have intact families. We were more inclined. We were more, slightly more inclined to be married and to have our families intact. In, in the Jim Crow South, you mean? In the Jim Crow era, period. Yeah, right. uh, statistically, black families were, were slightly more, uh, more likely to, to be married. So there's only so much of that that you can lay at the feet of, of mm -hmm. the structural. And I, I don't mean to, to diminish or denigrate the structural inequities, but there's only so much of this that you can lay sure. at the feet of that. You've got to look again at, at the changes, what has changed in the, in the, in the 40 or 50 years. Well, you're laying much then. of the blame on feminism, aren't you? I, I, I tend not to, you know, I, I, <laughs> I hesitate to want to put it like that because I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to feminism, but I do believe that one of the unintended byproducts of feminism was this ideal that we are uh, interchangeable, which we are not. And it's not, not, not even just feminism. You've you got to go back to the whole thing that I said about the, um, the no-fault society. I think a lot, big part of the problem is that we are a no-fault society. Nobody's ever to blame for their own failures. I think an accompaniment, a correlate of all of this, mm -hmm. not necessarily a cause, but I think there's a correlation there, is a process which has occurred in America generally, which might be called the coarsening of public life and the coarsening of public culture. But that coarsening is especially visible in some ways in black inner-city culture, though it is assisted by uh, the corporate white guys who uh, popularize and earn much of the money out of 
uh, of hip-hop music and uh, the earlier rap, and the general themes that are conveyed in that brand of music and in that brand of culture generally, uh, which is anti-police and anti-female. It involves a good deal of hostility towards women, even though one also focuses on their inevitable uh, polka-trudeness attraction for men. Uh, yeah. There's a a hate for women as sexual objects, even though there is a fascination with them as sexual objects, which is conveyed in that inner city culture and uh, the music and entertainments that are pervade, uh, that are built around those themes that are pervade back to the ghetto. There's a great misogyny and there's a great course. Misogyny is the word I should have used. But I, uh, I, I, would, I would caution you, though, about uh, limiting that to, you know, to the African-American inner city. Oh, I don't. I yeah, don't. This, you know, I've seen posters for, you know, hip-hop culture in Warsaw, Poland, in, yeah. in Freetown, South Africa, um, uh, Freetown, uh, Sierra Leone, et cetera, and et cetera. We're talking about a, a global phenomenon. Yeah. It, may have, it's it may have originated. It's popularized through film and through television. Yes, it may have originated in, 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 in one particular place, but it, it's pretty general. But doesn't it also alter values and even affect the young men in the inner city who otherwise might consider taking responsibility for the kids they have conceived. I don't know that it alters. I know. I think that it validates. I think it validates our worst. All right. um, the argument that I've made for years is that it validates our worst impulses. Mm -hmm. It validates some of our worst um, behaviors. It makes it seem okay. I, I'll never. I never want to give anybody the cop out of saying a song or a video made me misbehave. It's like the devil made me do it. Exactly. Yeah. I never want to give anybody that cop out, but I will say that a song, if, you're, if you are inclined to misbehave, there's your theme song. There's your, there's your, your, your validation on the radio. Well said indeed. Uh, let's choose one of your gallery of, uh, of guys hanging around but not, and, mm -hmm. and breeding and creating children but not taking responsibility for them. Okay. You mean in the, in the, uh, From in the, the book? book? Oh, um, there was a gentleman, uh, I guess it, it, in line with the theme that we were talking about, there was a gentleman that I interviewed who was um, in Atlanta who had four mm -hmm. children by three, by three women. He didn't fit, you know, your stereotype of hanging around. He was a successful and, and employed uh, executive. But uh, the thing that always jumped out at me when I asked him uh, about how it was, he said he'd, he had wanted always a white picket fence existence, but he had wound up a father of four. Uh, hmm. by three women and had no relationship with any of them. And I asked him how that came to be, and he started telling me about getting pulled over for driving while black. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and I, I did this twice, and, he, and it kept coming back that way. And I explained to him, you know, and I, and I, I stopped him. I said, I understand the problem of driving while black. You've been pulled over that too, is, probably. Yeah, I've been pulled time. over for the same reason. That That is a problem in our society, but... That has nothing to do with the fact that you managed to 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 yeah. do this. And unless you're going to tell me that the white man closed the the drugstore on the night that those children were made, mm -hmm. you know, you have some responsibility there. You know, that was not the the white man's you know thing. The white man did not make these kids. The white man did not create the situation where you have no relationship with any of them. And I think that's you know that's sort of this dichotomy that we have. You know, if, if if I could wave a wand and do anything, uh, I would. Uh, there's two things I would like to do in terms of race in this country. I would like to get white people to understand that it did not end in 19. Because there seems to be this notion that it ended in 1968 and we shall overcome and kumbaya and there is no more racism. I would like to get them to see. Guess what there is. Uh, and I would mm -hmm. like to get white, black folks to see, even though this still exists, there are things that we can and should be doing now, which would much uh, uh, alleviate 
some of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So I really get angry, you know, again, I don't buy that false dichotomy. I really get angry with black and white in terms of the issue of race, because it seems to me that both are sort of hiding their heads in the sand. Well, what then can be done, and what do you urge, at least in terms of minimal steps, that one might begin with if one is a father, but inattentive to and out of real contact with his kids? Uh, hold that question in mind as we pause Holding. to serve capitalism in our own way, and we return in a few minutes to Leonard Pitts, Jr. And we return to Leonard Pitts, Jr. We are drawing from his uh, recently reissued book, and very readable and uh, really quite moving, I thought and undoubtedly quite valuable, one hopes, for the influence it may have upon many young men, black or white, I should say. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had a lot of white men come up to me and say that you yeah. know, they found it very valuable. The title of the book, Bla uh, Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood. By the way, you are doing an appearance at the Afrocentric Bookstore tomorrow. You know? I am signing books tomorrow uh, at 6 p.m. at Afrocentric Books at 4655 South Martin Luther yeah. King Drive. Excellent. Come uh, on down. Now, uh, when last heard from, I was putting the question to you simply, what then do you advise as steps that a concerned but still kind of inattentive father and a, a non-present father might begin to consider? I think that the first thing that father has to get through his head is the fact that he is important to the upbringing of those kids, not just, uh, you know, the, that if he pays his his bills, if he if he makes sure that his kids um, have you know food to, to eat and shelter over their heads or whatever, that that's just the beginning. That's not the end. Uh, what frustrated me in doing a lot of the interviews with uh, fathers in the book was that they seemed to feel that they had done their entire fatherly duty by doing that. And my thing is that as a father, that's just that that's just the beginning. You have to be there for that son who wants to test himself against you by, you know, playing basketball in the driveway. You have to be there for that daughter the first time she brings, you know, some young man uh, home. You have to understand that there's a role here for you to play. And you have to make sure that the, assuming that you're not with the, the mother of the children, you have to make sure that she understands that you have a role here to play beyond just finance and that you know, you come to an, mm. to an understanding where she will allow you to play that role. Again, assuming that you're not in the household and that the two of you are not together. Would you advise <clears throat> such a young man also that he considers seriously mm. moving into the household, in fact, getting married? I would. Uh, the, the, my, I'm operating under the premise that he and the, he and the mother are irreconcilably parted. But yes, if, if at all possible, if it's at all feasible, yeah, get move into the household and, 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 and be dad and be married. I think that uh, uh, it's not a, an accident that children who are raised by an, in a two-parent household where the parents are married are less likely to uh, be raised in poverty, less likely to do poorly in school, less likely to wind up in jail, less likely to wind up teenage parents themselves. This is not brain surgery. This is not a major mystery. Now, in the days of feminist-sponsored androgyny mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier, You're it, was in trouble with the feminists. it was conceived that, uh, well, you know, uh, Fathers don't have any special role. Right. Uh, women can do everything that fathers do. Right. Uh, clearly, you don't think that to be quite the case. No. What, then, are the special functions of the father, black or white? I cannot put it better than one of the young men in my book uh, did. He said that when you sleep better when your father is, in, is, is at home. A father secures a household in a way that a mother typically <laughs> does not. 
typically can, cannot secure a household. Again, to go back to the example I used to go about, you know, basketball in the driveway. When my son was 12 or 13 years old and feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm coming on to manhood now, it was not his mother that he wanted to test himself against. It was his dad. He looked for his dad to test himself against playing basketball in the driveway. It doesn't seem like a big thing until you look at it in that context of the young lion, you know, mm-hmm. trying to test himself against the older lion. That's part of the process, and that's part of what we're supposed to be there for, and it's not mom's job to do that. By golly, Pitts, you're a sexist. <laughs> not at all. In the sense that you believe that there are sexual differences. Well, in that case, yes. I do believe that there are sexual I, I believe that there are sexual differences, and I believe that, that they are the sum of more than just socialization. I believe they're of biological imprinting. Of course they are. And all serious research demonstrates that, yeah. as I can testify as a, uh, a member of the union, as a Ph.D. in social psychology who has, among other things, examined such questions uh, in many different contexts. And, I, and uh, though I've not done research on it, the research all verifies what you've said. Yeah. There are really uh, male and female created he, or if you prefer she, right. them, says the Bible. Right. And there is a difference between... Male and female functions, built in, hardwired. And for a long time, it has not been, you know, possible to to say that publicly, yeah. uh, because I think you know the the fear among women was that in saying that they are not the same, you were saying that they are not equal. And I think that that's mm-hmm. the distinction that we really need to learn to make. You do not have to be mm-hmm. the same in order to be equal. A further theme in Tavis Smiley's program over the weekend was the question of whether the black mother um, loves her son but raises her daughter suggesting the black mother somehow misuses or is inattentive to the real needs of the son. There was a kind of a touch of hostility towards black mothers, which is reversing the usual idealization of black mothers, which you get from black intellectuals. Actually, I think that expression uh, plays more to the idea that uh, that black mothers coddle uh, sons too that much was, yeah. and, and sort of, you know, do more to prepare daughters for the world. That's just what they were saying. Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, to what degree I buy that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not really, you know, my, my, my personal jury is still out on that. Well, you're... Mother obviously did a pretty good job with you. Yeah, I tell people I had the, uh, you know, me, my sisters, and my brother had the uh, fortune to be raised by Wonder Woman, is what I tell people. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was, for all uh, practical intents and purposes, a single mother, uh, even though my dad was in the household. But the thing was, she had this way of not only holding high expectations of you, but of conveying to you the fact that she had high expectations to the degree that, you know, when you didn't misbehave, you know, or when you tried to, to toe the line, it was because you feared punishment, but it was because even more you feared earning her disapproval. Her disapproval was worse than, than the punishment. You did not want to slip and let her see that you were not as uh, as good as she had, you know, mm-hmm. thought you were. I mean, that was a very powerful motivator for me. I want to take a moment now <clears throat> to invite telephone calls. Uh, some uh, newscast coming shortly, and we hope to go to the phones directly after that. So, of course, as ever, the number is 591-7200, 312, the area code, if you're listening at some greater distance, then 591-7200. And if you're listening to us over the Internet on either coast or, for that matter, in some other country and want to get in on this conversation, the proper way, of course, is by email, the email address extension 720 at tribune.com extension 720 at tribune t-r-i-b-u-n-e dot com of course we are very interested in getting uh, calls from some of our black callers 
uh, who might respond on some special basis to the argument developed by Leonard Pitts, developed fully in the new book, Becoming Dad, and uh, uh, briefly summarized, I would say, in our conversation. And a minute before the news comes, and then right on to the phones after that, um, what have I not given you a chance to say that is crucial to your thesis? Uh, I, I think you've been very good in giving me a, a, a chance to say plenty that needs to be said. If I were to reiterate anything, it would be that I think that, here's what I would say, women have more power in this than I think they really understand or that they really use. I think that as a man, remembering how it was back when I was dating, as a man, you will step up to whatever level you need to step up to. You will go to whatever bar, however high the bar is, if you know, in in order to, you know, be with the object of your affection, let's say, or your attraction. I think that uh, for a lot of, in a lot of cases, the problem is that women do not value themselves highly enough to set the bar high enough, uh, you know, for us. And, you know, it's human nature. You will, you will, you will rise to whatever level you have to rise to, but if the bar is set low, then that's, that that's fine. I think that uh, it, it behooves women, African-American women in particular, to set the bar a little bit higher than it's being set. And I think you will see a corresponding, uh, you know, improvement in the in, in the performance of men. And with that, uh, to the newsroom for a quick update. And then right on to the phones. If you're trying to reach us and hitting the busy signal, uh, the proper strategy, of course, is to call again after we've said goodnight to a prior caller. 591-7200. And we return after this update. And returning directly to Leonard Pitts, Jr., uh, whose new book, Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood, is published by Agate Press. And we go directly to the phones. At the moment, in fact, all the phone lines are taken. If you want an alternative, uh, you can get to us via email. That's extension 720, as one word, at tribune.com. Or call again right after we say goodnight to another caller. And here is the first of those callers. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, good evening, uh, well, uh, what a pleasure to speak to a really terrific columnist, Mr. Pitts. And uh, I, I want to go back to, you brought up rap and hip-hop hip -hop culture earlier. Uh, of course, American popular culture is unthinkable without the contribution of, the disproportionate contribution of uh, African Americans through the years. My own CD collection, and I'm white, my own CD collection is heavily disproportionate uh, with black artists, jazz artists, rock, soul, rhythm, and blues. And I think that they've made an immense and immensely positive contribution to American culture. And um, I do not feel the same way about the current rap and hip-hop uh, culture. And I absolutely uh, agree that it is not only influencing all of American culture, but world culture as well, as it was pointed out, what uh, I think Mr. Pitt said he saw in Poland, if I, I think he said. Um, now, am I becoming a fuddy-duddy? And uh, it was ever thus that, you know, as one gets older, one tends to denigrate youth culture, uh, but I hear nothing but a combination of uh, slipsism and hedonism in, in a great deal of the music coming out now. And uh, so uh, am I becoming a fuddy-duddy? Am I missing something? Am I missing some real contributions here, or is it really all garbage? Or is it somewhere in between? You are becoming a fuddy-duddy, and what's wrong with that? I think <laughs> uh, I, I was a lot happier personally, the moment that I decided to, as I put it, embrace my inner fogey, the moment I decided to quit trying to, you know, pretend that 
a lot of what I was hearing was of interest to me. Uh, in terms of hip-hop, there's two things at work here. I think that in the best of circumstances, the best of hip-hop, you and I, you know, if we're a roughly you know, similar age, are going to feel a disconnect from it because it's not our music. It's not what we grew up with. It's not what, what shaped and influences. And we're talking about the best of hip-hop, okay? Because, you know, we, we didn't grow up with, with people speaking, uh, you know, in rhymed couplets to, to the music. That's just not our thing. So, you know, I, 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 I accept that as a generational thing. But once you get beyond that, there's this whole other issue of the coarseness and of the values of, of the music, and that's what really troubles me. You know, that's what really bothers me. I, I accept that under the best of circumstances, I'm never going to be a hip-hop fan. You know, I'm, I'm not of that age. But, you know, I, I would like to at least be able to respect the music. To give you an analogy, you know, my mom was uh, a big Nat Cole fan, and I, you know, I've, I've changed since then. But when I was a kid, I couldn't. Nat Cole was, you know, don't, don't bring me this stuff. I'm too busy listening to The Temptations. Right. Complete, but what, what, all those are, what all those artists had in common, and you can, exactly. you can throw in... Miles Davis and John yeah. Coltrane, and you can you can throw in practically every uh, uh, artist of almost any ethnicity uh, going back 25 years and further was an a, an ideal to appeal to the masses. They weren't making music for you know quote unquote their people, whoever their people might be. Not just uh, that, but w those people were all singing songs of uplift. Those people were all singing songs about men and women, and relationships and things of that nature. Uh, and you know, I and and they were not you know beating us over the head or beating women over the head, metaphorically speaking. That's right. And that I think is is the big difference here. Motown you know? Motown was the sound of young America. It wasn't the yeah. sound of Black America. It was the sound of America, of young America. And Barry Gordy wore it on his sleeve. It was an American enterprise. Yeah. And and I think we've lost that somewhere. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you. And I think we share your sentiments. And we go to the next caller on five nine one. Seven two double zero. Good evening. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Oh, hi. How are you, gentlemen? Good. Please go ahead. Excellent show tonight. I wish more um, talk radios would cover people who have written books. That's more interesting than some of the other topics I'm hearing. So this is excellent. Um, I agree with everything you're saying. I hope, sir, that you don't water down or become apologetic because if you do get attacked by the so-called feminism, stand your ground because the things you are saying are what we need to hear and they are troops. Um, I myself am a divorced woman whose um, ex-husband lives in Michigan, and I moved here to Chicago. I was born in Chicago when I came back here to teach. Um, but my ex-husband travels these roads, it's expensive gas, to come and see his girls. And that was a deal that we made, that we would both take turns so that he could make sure, make sure the girls you know, saw their dad on a regular or semi-regular basis. As a matter of fact, they just got back yesterday from spending a week with him, and he arranged to take his vacation during the summer when they're out of school. And I think one of the aspects, one of the things that helps our relationship to work like that is because I decided a long time ago that he was very important in their lives, and I wanted to be his friend. And so I tried to do everything I can to make sure he knows he's very important to their lives. And um, that seems to be working. And also, I'm a Christian, and I'm not about all the drama and anything else that can filter in that could destroy that. Um, I hope to see you at the bookstore tomorrow. I live on King Drive, and the girls and I will be going to the movies in the park. So we'll shoot down, and hopefully I can pick up your book and get it autographed. I will look forward to seeing you and but signing I, that book for you. I agree with you. Please don't back down what, on what you're saying. Um, and, you know, just keep up the good work and try to get that message out to all these men, but particularly black men. I'm a teacher, and I am so tired, and I'm so sick 
of the children who don't have fathers who are active in their lives, and these children are just falling through the cracks. Ma'am, a question to you, if I may. Mm -hmm. At what level do you teach? Um, I'm teaching elementary. I, I, I taught pretty much up through eighth grade. I'm a special ed teacher, so I, and uh -huh. I'm taught general ed. And so I'm exposed to, you know, anything from K through eighth grade. Do you have a, any opportunity to kind of convey these values to the children in your care? Yes, I do. It's, it's every opportunity that I get, every opportunity that I get, I try to convey to them about Christian values, about um, morals. You know, I even go, I go out on a limb, and I don't care if people think this is old-fashioned, but I say, you guys keep sex and marriage. I have a teenage daughter who just graduated from high school, and that is something that I've taught all my girls. It belongs in marriage. Keep, you know, that in marriage. Wait for the guy to come around. And so far, as far as I know, you know, she's stuck to that. Um, and she's going on 19. So, yes, I do try to convey this to my students as much as possible. And, um, you know, if, if, if I'm answering your question correctly. You are indeed. I, and I thank I, you very much for the call. You're welcome. A very welcome one. Good night for now. Uh, let me read you... Uh, an email I've got here. I salute you, this is addressed to me, for hosting the estimable Mr. Pitts tonight. A question for both of you. What did you think of Bill Cosby's rather pointed comments two years ago in Washington on the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka? The comments raised quite a tempest. Do you think they were constructive and on target? In fact, he was attacked by many uh, outstanding uh, African-American spokespersons one way or another. The NAACP gave him a hard time. He was attacked by some. He was defended by a lot, too, which I yeah. think is the part that people never really, you know, get around to. It, it wasn't a monologue. What did you take to response? Uh, what did you take to have been his basic message? Uh, pretty much, pretty close to, to, to what I've been saying, um, you know, that uh, that there's work here for us as African-Americans to do. Uh, my basic take, in order, you know, to answer the the the, the uh, listener's question, my basic take on what Bill Cosby said. I wrote four columns. Uh, I've written four columns to date in support of what Cosby said. My only complaint, and it's a minor one, mm -hmm. is that I think that some of his language was probably a little imprecise and probably a little exaggerated. But I think that comes from being a comedian. The soul of comedy mm -hmm. is, is is exaggeration. Uh, but I think if you remove that from the table, I think that what he has had to say is uh, timely and uh, you know mostly inarguable. Mm -hmm. I fully agree. Uh, five nine one seven two double zero is the number for email. It's extension seven twenty at tribune dot com, and we shall return to our listeners directly after this. And we return directly to Leonard Pitts Jr. Uh, the thesis that we are developing tonight is developed far more fully and with some wonderful reportorial material, many interviews, many portraits of particular people that we are not developing in our conversation tonight. Uh, the book is titled Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood, published by Agate Press. 5917200 is the number, and uh, we go to, um, I'm not sure which caller, I guess we go to this caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes, I, I want to thank you again for having one of the, the few programs in, in any of the electronic media that really goes in depth on important ideas. We try. Yeah, well, you do a very good job, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, Mr. Pitts and, and, and you, Mr. Rosenberg, both talked about, uh, I think you touched on Ted Moynihan's report to President Nixon. Yeah. And also on some discussion about somebody else who had said that some of these problems are structural. And, and one thing I wanted to point out was that the By the way, the man, the man who said that uh, in the thing I heard over the weekend was Cornell West, a, okay. uh, 
a philosopher, so-called, for whom I don't have the highest regard. Well, I, I, I disagree with you on there. I've heard Mr. What, Dr. Yeah, West speak several actually. times. All right. But we, we, we could disagree. But, but, but my point on the matter, the, the, the biggest expansion of welfare payments was during the Nixon administration. That was a Democratic Congress. Nixon didn't do it all on his own. That, that, that is certainly true. But Moynihan's biggest suggestion was to create jobs. Mm -hmm. And Nixon's strategy with the inner cities, the ghettos in cities, was very much to keep a lid on. And he massively increased welfare payments. And also that was the timing of a change from welfare payments being coming much harder to get for a two-parent household. Yeah, strangely, it persisted until the presidency of Bill Clinton. Uh, the uh, the cutback on welfare rolls and the end to, quote, welfare dependency was instituted uh, with some cover stories, but basically instituted as a real policy during the Clinton uh, administration. Yeah, the first, the first it administration. Is, yeah. it, is, it is true. And I, I would say I, I wouldn't want to credit Nixon as being so deviously smart that he did it on purpose. But I think, well, the, the, the fact that he, he picked somebody like Moynihan to study the problems of of black America, mm -hmm. okay, does, does kind of say something that does. I mean, Moynihan was a good man, okay, but, you know, he was he, he was the closest guy that I think the people of the Nixon administration knew to black America. Well, let's, okay? let's get some response to what you've said from Leonard Pitts. Well, I, I, again, I, I really don't know how to respond. I, I, I like you, would not uh, want to credit Nixon with being that much of an evil genius, uh, evil perhaps genius, uh, <laughs> I would not know, uh, but I think that whatever you know the um, you know whatever the 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 reasoning behind it, uh, the the effect you know turned out to be the same. That uh, you had this dependency, this welfare dependency, which really adversely impacted African American families over the years. So, all right, thank you for the call. We have to rush, I fear, because we're loaded with additional callers, and time is rather short. Uh, though there is now one line available, of course, five nine one seven two double zero, and here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, this is uh, Willie Reed, and I'd like to say good evening, first of all, to both of you gentlemen. Good evening. And, Thank you, sir. And I've enjoyed immensely listening to the program. Um, I am a firm believer as a black male, as a widow black male, as a Christian black male, um, how example, leading by example, is so important. Um, I'm raising five children by myself. Uh, I have a son that has graduated from college. He's now employed. I have a daughter that uh, was accepted at seven different schools. She chose Northwestern. I have another daughter who's a senior at Illinois State. And I think it's important to set the bar high in terms of expectations from your children to hold them accountable, but to also lead by example and to encourage them to make good choices and to let them see you as being human and let them see you even though you may make mistakes and you can say you're sorry. Um, I'm a firm believer that people need to be held accountable. But people need to know also that they're human and that they can make mistakes. 
Well, you don't leave me much to comment on there. I, I tend to agree with everything uh, with everything that you said. It sounds like you're doing a, a wonderful job with uh, with your with your uh, I believe it was daughters that you said, with your daughters. Yes. And uh, you know, and and it's sort of a you know, it's it sort of supports what I've been saying that as fatherhood is not just about making sure the the lights are on and there's food in the refrigerator. It's mm-hmm. about, as you say, leading by example. It's about uh, setting the bar high. It's about having those expectations. Uh, so, you know, there's all the stuff for me to do, I guess, is to salute you for the job you've done. Well, actually, I was calling to support you because... Well, uh, we, we support I, each other then. Right, absolutely. Can I ask you a question, sir? Yes, sir. <clears throat> um, you, you've noted that you're uh, a believing Christian. Were you always such, or did that come somewhat later in life, and did that transform your attitudes towards your parental role? Well, uh it came later in life, true, um, but my dad was not a Christian, and he believed very firmly in a man being a man, mm-hmm. and he was a butcher, and he would come home from work, and before he had his dinner, he had to take a bath in alcohol, and when he had vacation, he wouldn't take vacation he would take the money from his vacation and buy furniture for the house. So he more or less led by example himself. Mm-hmm. So you had a model. You had yes. a model for, uh, for fatherhood provided by your own father. Right. Which is, of course, <clears throat> we thank you, sir, very much for the call. That is, of course, one of the additional points you make in your book, that there's an absence of models for many young uh, African-American men. Yeah, that there was an absence of models for me. There's an absence of models for a lot of us as men. What was interesting is when I was approached and when I decided to write this book, the thought in the back of my head was that surely I was the only one who had ever thought about this. Surely I was the only one who had become a father and then said, oh, my God, you know, what do I model myself after? Uh, and what was, you know, gratifying as a writer but also disheartening just as a human being was that, you know, every man that I interviewed, had gone through that same thought process themselves. How do I make a father of myself because I've never really seen this? And it turned out I wasn't the only one who had looked at the Cosby show or who had looked at the Brady Bunch trying to, you know, almost wanting to take notes and saying, okay, maybe this is how it's done. I hope you'll forgive me personalizing a little bit, but Mm -hmm. you are sitting here wearing a crucifix. Yes. Which tells me you're a serious Christian. Yes. Did that have anything to do with developing? Just as as I asked that of of the last caller, I ask it of you also. With developing as a father? Yeah, as developing these attitudes in this this overview. Um, I think probably the attitudes and the overview probably predated, you know, getting, you know, mm-hmm. real serious about about uh, about my religious faith. I think the religious faith has sort of helped to deepen and sort of broaden the commitment to trying to do the best that I could as a father. But I think from the beginning there was a sense of of trying to, you know, trying to to make myself this thing that I had never really seen in my own, you know, mm-hmm. life. Uh, that's one point at which I would argue with you. You hadn't seen it, perhaps, from your own father. Right. Silly was there. Yeah. Uh, which is more than was true for a lot of lots them. of young exactly. uh, black men growing up at the same time you did. But there are other models available. That is, one is in contact with the larger culture. One knows other families. One even has models in some of the silly representations. Silly, but 
uh, traditional representations of fatherhood in television shows like Father Knows Best, which but, you must have seen when you were a kid. Yeah, but again, there's a reason that they call that television and not real life. Yeah. You know, real life does not uh, uh, resolve itself in 22 minutes, My, you know, plus to be, commercials. To be sure. So, you know, that was a limited But the idea use. is culturally available. That's my point. Yeah, oh, the, the idea role. is culturally available. The ideal is definitely culturally available. That's how you know what you're reaching for. Yeah. But the how-to... The how mm -hmm. to reach the ideal is not culturally available, even if there's a, you know, there's a good father on the street, you know, uh, that, that, that you live, you know, that's somebody else's dad, you yeah. know, and so you, you, that's really, you really don't have access to that uh, like you would with your own. Here's another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, are you there? Hello. Oh, yes, I'm, oh I'm glad I got through. I'm listening to your show, and I agree with everything that he says. But what I would like to know is, since we know what the problem is, there's so many contributing factors, society, individuals, poverty. I mean, the list could go on and on. But what is the solution? We've had sex education in school, and nothing seems to help. I'm wondering, by what yardstick do young women measure their womanhood and by what yardstick do young men now measure their manhood we're like in third world countries they might go out and hunt a lion or get tattoos or something what do our, our young men have to measure their manhood by and i think it is by all the wrong things so my question basically is if we know what the problem is what are we going to do to solve it well, I don't know that that problem that that solutions are going to be imposed from without. I think that's been a lot of the uh, the failing uh, that we've seen over the years. I think that schools and government and other institutions have only a limited ability to affect this. I think that the change needs to come from within. In this case, the African American community, but obviously the larger community is, uh, as well is in, is involved in this. But the change needs to come from within. It needs to come from from women. It needs to come from women saying, you know, that there is a certain standard of behavior that they require, and that they are I willing, agree. and that they are willing even to be alone. If that's if the if the if the alternative is to 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 either be alone or to be in a situation that is not conducive to 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 you know bringing up a, a children in a stable environment, then they need to choose, they need to have the courage to choose being alone. And that's a, that's a hard thing, that's a heck of a thing, but I think that's where it will begin to change. Uh, I agree with you 100%, but when you start having 12 and 13-year-old girls having sex and their whole life is about pleasing their boyfriend, I mean, you know, what can you know? You've got a cycle there because you've got a you've got a repeating cycle there because what are twelve and thirteen year old girls doing having sex? The reason exactly. 12, the reason that they are free to, to to go and do those things is because they're either you know not being effectively parented, uh, and or or possibly they've got a you know mom who is there you know doing the best that she can but also has to work or do whatever it is she has to do and can't and can't be there to does. effectively parent. I, I agree that it, that women have a large role in this, and I agree that we do need to hold men to a higher standard. And, you know, and sex I, education in school may not be uh, as much a solution as a, an additional source of the problem. Sex education given to 12-year-olds tells them, exactly. in essence, it's okay to go out and do this sort of thing. We expect you to do it. I don't know that I agree with that, only because I think that, you know... <laughs> 
too, too many kids, you know, especially in my era, you know, came up and were 16, 17, 18 years old and had no idea how sex worked. I, I believe I read it in Dear Abby, of all places, mm-hmm. where a girl was uh, 16 years old and had the, was, was convinced that she could not become pregnant on the first time. You know, so you uh-huh. have all of these myths, uh, myths and things, which you know, frankly, need to be exploded. And I don't have a problem with uh, sex ed classes of doing that. All right, thanks to the caller. I want to work in uh, a last and necessarily a very quick call. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I'd like to ask uh, Mr. Fitz: Is this black fatherless phenomenon uh, a, a, a characteristic in the black American, or is it also prevalent in? in countries like Cuba or Jamaica, Haiti, South America, Central America, where you also have black black families. I couldn't tell you. I don't know enough about uh, black families in those in those locales to be able to speak to that with any kind of authority. I just know the way that it is here in the uh, in the United States. In fact, there was a recent study just released, uh, which uh, informs us that when it comes to Mexican immigrants, there's a fair amount of quote illegitimacy there too, as much maybe as 40 or 50 percent of all kids among the uh, Latino immigrants to this country, particularly from Mexico, seem to be uh, at least not conceived in and maintained in wedlock. Actually here in the States. I, yeah. I, I think there is something about our culture that, that again, uh, inspires this or that allows or encourages or supports this. And, again, not just in, in blacks, but, you know, cr- across the board. Yeah. That's why you see the numbers rising in the white community as well, because, again, it's okay. There is no social stigma to being the, the uninvolved dad. Um, and um, there are many other uh, forces moving to make that all the more of the case. I just wonder about the agitation for uh, gay marriage and whether that further invalidates the model of marriage. You know, I come from a completely different place with regard to uh, to gay marriage. It mm-hmm. strikes me that uh, marriage is something that we heterosexuals have essentially declared valueless <laughs> over the past uh, 30 years. So I find it rather poignant that you have all of these same-sex couples seeking the uh, sanction, seeking a sanction mm-hmm. that we have essentially, you know, thrown away. We're 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 complaining that they're going to demean marriage when we've basically thrown it in the ash can. There's something kind of weird there. A last and very quick question, just half a minute left. Are we getting proper leadership from the relevant major black organizations on issues of this sort? Um, I do not know that as African Americans we can afford to sit around and wait for, uh, for, for leadership. I think the whole model of charismatic leadership had its day, and that day was the 1960s. Uh-huh. And, you know, you, you can't sit and wait for that now. Interestingly said. I thank you most sincerely for joining us. Thank Leonard. you for having me. Our guest has been Leonard Pitts, Jr. His new book that we've been drawing from is titled Becoming Dad, Black Men and the Journey to Fatherhood.